Well, keep your Bibles open there to the book of Revelation. Congregations of Christians were surveyed as to which book of the Bible they would most like to hear preached in their pulpit. The number one answer, the book of Revelation. Pastors were surveyed as to which book of the Bible they feared the most to preach, and pastors answered, the book of Revelation. Well, this is a wonderful Sunday for us as a congregation. We've been enjoying the verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of God's Word together for the 15 years that I've been here, and we've done a lot of preparation to get us ready for the book of Revelation. You see, without the final book of the Bible, you would have a story with no climax, no resolution, but we do have the book of Revelation, and it is the climax of the entire story of all that God has done from the beginning of creation through the history of Israel to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the consummation of all things being underneath his authority and his rule, the restoration of all things, as Scripture says. It's all been leading up to our study of the book of Revelation. Just a month or so ago, Grace to You tweeted out that perhaps no portion of Scripture has been more misunderstood and neglected than the book of Revelation. The reason why the book of Revelation is so misunderstood and therefore neglected is that you have to have a good understanding of the rest of the Bible in order to understand the book of Revelation. You see, we've undertaken in my time here as the preacher to lay the necessary groundwork to be able to understand, to the best of our ability, this final book of the Bible. Back in 2010, I began a series on the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And through several series, taking a break because it's such a long book, we finally completed our study of Isaiah in 2018, just five years ago. Also, back in 2016 and 2017, we had a focused time on the study of future events, prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, as we looked into the relevant chapters in the book of Daniel in order to be able to teach also First and Second Thessalonians in the New Testament so that we would have the epistles and what Paul wrote about the coming of Jesus Christ in those key parts of prophetic scripture. But we've also studied the Olivet Discourse on two occasions, Matthew 24 and 25, right after our study of First and Second Thessalonians in 2018. And then just in February of this year, we went back to the Olivet Discourse as we were getting close to the end of the Gospel of Mark. So by studying Daniel, by studying Isaiah, by studying the Psalms, by studying the Olivet Discourse and what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, I hope that we are ready to be able to tackle what is perhaps the most difficult, the most misunderstood, and the most neglected of all of the books of the Bible. But as we look in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I want you to see that the opening word there is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the obscuring of Jesus Christ. It is not the hiding of Jesus Christ. But the book tells us from the very beginning that its intention is to reveal to us what is hidden. That's what the word revelation or apocalypse means. It means an unveiling. And so this morning we're going to be 
unveiling the book of Revelation. That is, showing you how is it that we are supposed to interpret the book of Revelation. You see here an inkblot text called a Rorschach test. This is a psychological test, and there's many different inkblots that are used. And different people will see different things in the inkblot. Like this looks like some kind of crazy butterfly or moth to me, but I don't know what it is that you saw when you looked up at this inkblot. And that's the way the book of Revelation is. It reveals something about you by what you see when you open it and when you read it. If you are a person who has read and understood and believed the Old Testament scriptures, then you should be able to read the book of Revelation and understand it without being confused. But if you have misinterpreted or misunderstood Old Testament scripture like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, then you will probably also misunderstand the book of Revelation. What you see when you open the book really reveals something about yourself. And that's what is so interesting about this particular book. It's the only book in the New Testament that there are multiple ways of interpreting and understanding among Bible-believing Christians. There are solid believers out there who will read the book of Revelation very differently from the way that I read the book of Revelation. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is taking the veil, removing the veil from this final book, the Apocalypse, And so after just a short talk about the author and title of the book, we're going to spend most of our time on how do we interpret the book of Revelation. And in order to do that, we'll look at these three points. What is the genre of the book of Revelation? Because there's some disagreement there. What is the symbolism? How do we interpret the symbols in the book of Revelation? Because it's filled with symbolism. And then finally, we'll talk briefly about the timing of the key part, chapter 6 through 18, of the book of Revelation. There's four different views on how to interpret Revelation 6 through 18. And that's where most of the difference is. All of us Christians can agree on chapters 1 through 5. We can agree on chapters 19 through 22 for the most part. But the time of tribulation that is described in chapters 6 through 18, is that past? Is it present and ongoing? Is it something that's going to happen in the future? Or is it not related to events that are happening in history at all, but it's just pictures of spiritual battles and spiritual struggles? We'll be talking about that at the end. But first, let's read verses 1 through 3 as we seek to unveil the apocalypse. Let's see how God introduces this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is one of the few books of the Bible that comes with its own title. It starts right there at the beginning, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if your Bible is like mine, it's got the wrong title at the top of the page. My Bible says, The Revelation to John. That's not the title of the book. The title of the book is, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. God gives us the title right there. Now, 
we like to name books after the author. And so Paul's letter to the Ephesians and Peter's letter to the churches. And so we like to put the apostle's name in there. But I like that John, when he's writing, he doesn't put his own name in the title, but he puts Jesus Christ's name in the title so that we are reminded this is not the production of the imagination of John, but this is an unveiling, a revelation from our Lord Jesus Christ to us. Let's think about the title in the right way. Now, John does identify himself as the author, the one who has written down this revelation, there in verse 1. He says, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John also identifies himself in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. He identifies himself again in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. And then finally, at the end of the book, in chapter 22, he names himself again. So four times we are told who the author of this book is. Now, this is different from John's other books. When John wrote the Gospel of John and he wrote his letters, he never gave his name. But here he gives his name four times. That has caused some Christians to say, hmm, that doesn't seem very John-like. Maybe we have a different John that has written the book of Revelation from the John who wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John. There's actually a lot of discussion and a lot of different views on who is the John who wrote the book of Revelation. Now, it's not just because he identifies himself by name, but also because the style of the book of John, the Greek that it is written in, seems to be different in a number of ways from the style of the Gospel of John and the letters. And so, if you're reading the book in Greek, as many scholars do, you think, this doesn't just sound like John. This sounds like someone else writing. However, I think that that is overblown. Yes, there are some differences in the way John writes the book of Revelation than the way he wrote the Gospel, but these are different types of literature. If you read something that I write as a fictional work and then something that I write as an essay, well, it's two different types of literature. It's going to be a different style that is involved in writing those things. And the differences tend to be overblown, and I think the similarities between the books tend to be undersold by those who want to identify the writer of the book of Revelation as a different John from the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel and the letters. Early church history is unanimous that the Apostle John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. And it wasn't until later that that was questioned. And it was questioned by a brilliant pastor living in Alexandria in the 3rd century who didn't like the doctrine of millennialism. He didn't like the idea that there was going to be a thousand-year kingdom on earth. And so it seems like that was part of Dionysius' motivation to try to say, well, the Apostle John didn't write the book of Revelation, but it was written by this other John, who is a prophet, we still accept it as Scripture, but it's not by the Apostle. He knew he couldn't deny that it was Scripture, because all of the church had it as part of their Bible, and everyone from the earliest times knew that it was a real prophecy from Jesus Christ. But he tried to undermine the book by saying it was a different John that wrote it. And he gave arguments that are still being used by people today who want to dispute it. But I want you to know and believe, as I do, that this is written by the Apostle John as the early church confirmed and as the book itself does demonstrate. won't go into all the details on the authorship with you, but let's take another word about the title of the book. God gave it to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ signified it and showed it 
by sending his angel to his servant John. So this is a pretty awesome picture of the transmission of God's revelation to Jesus Christ. The Father reveals to the Son, this is what I want you to give to the church. And then Jesus Christ gives it to his angel. And the angel sends it to John. And John writes it down. He sends it to the seven churches. And now it comes down through those churches down to us. From God the Father to Jesus Christ to the angel to John to the churches to you here this morning. What a a wonderful chain that is connecting us with what God wants us to know about him. And when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's what I think is the primary emphasis here, is that Jesus Christ is the one that is revealing it. Now, it's also true that this book reveals a lot about Jesus Christ. In fact, in our scripture reading there at the end of the chapter, you have this marvelous vision of the Son of Man in glory, with his face shining like the sun in full strength. And so the book of Revelation does reveal the glory of Jesus Christ perhaps more powerfully and more effectively than any other book of the Bible. But this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, I think it means the revelation that is from, that is by Jesus Christ, even though it is also largely about him. All right, so with a word about the author and the title, let's get into our main idea this morning. How do we interpret the book of Revelation? And in order to be able to properly interpret, to properly handle the book of Revelation, we need to identify what type of book is it. That's what we mean by genre. Genre is poetry, law, gospel, history, letters. There's all different types of literature in the Bible. And whenever we're interpreting a book of the Bible, we have to interpret it according to the type of literature that it is. And there's actually a lot of discussion about the type of literature that the book of Revelation is. So let's see if we can figure out what are the genres of the book of Revelation. The first one I want to focus on is the fact that the book of Revelation, like the other books of the New Testament, is a letter to churches. You have some letters in the New Testament that are specifically to one church like the letter to the Colossians. You have other church letters that are written to groups of churches, like Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatia was not a city, it was a region. And so it was a letter that went to many churches. Peter wrote his letters to the churches that were in Asia Minor. And that's the churches that received this letter as well. Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, the book of Revelation is a letter from John to the churches that were in this cradle of early Christianity Asia Minor. Now, as an epistle, we interpret it as we do the other letters that are in the New Testament. And the epistle part, the letter part of the book, is largely chapters 1 through 3. Those are the ones that read most like a New Testament letter, although there's something unique about these letters to these churches from the other letters in the New Testament. Then the second major part of the book is a book of prophecy. So, if you want to summarize the book of Revelation, it's an epistolary prophecy. It is like the prophetic books in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, but it's also like the letters of the New Testament. So, if you take the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament letters and squish them together, that's the book of Revelation. Pretty cool. And really, that's a lot of the content of the book of Revelation also. It takes everything that's in the Old Testament prophets, connects it with everything that's in the New Testament letters, and says this is how it's all going to work out in the end. So think of the book of Revelation 
as an epistolary prophecy. That's key. An epistle and a prophecy. Now, John identifies his book as a prophecy there in the opening verses. We read verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. John says, my book is a book of prophecy from the very beginning. He reiterates that throughout the book. If you come to chapter 19, verse 10, keep your finger there in chapter 1, and come over to the end of the book, chapter 19, verse 10, it says this, I fell down at his feet of the angel that was showing him these things to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here, the testimony of Jesus is a way of referring to the apostolic message. That's the testimony of Jesus. John and the other apostles were carrying on the testimony. Remember how John started his book? He said he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the apostolic message. So the apostolic message is the spirit of prophecy. So you go back to the Old Testament prophets and that same Old Testament prophet spirit is the same spirit that is revealing now through this revelation what is going to happen in the future, many of the things that were already written about in the Old Testament prophets. Okay? A couple other verses here to consider. I love this verse in John chapter 15. Jesus tells his disciples, no longer do I call you servants. That word servant is literally the word for slave. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. God gave him this prophecy to show to you. So all that Jesus hears from the Father, he makes known to us. We are his slaves, but we are slaves who he treats more like friends than slaves. So this is the spirit of prophecy here the prophetic word is the unveiling, the revelation of what the Father is making known to us. Just a great verse there in John that shows you this is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation. Notice the similarity in ideas. He's communicating the same thing in John 15:15 15, 15, that a few years later he starts off the book of Revelation with. And also, I wanted to throw Amos chapter 3, verse 7 up in front of you so you could see that the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. There's the word revealing and unveiling, an apocalypse. This is the revealing of God's secrets to his servants, the prophets. And John is a prophet. He's writing a book of prophecy so that we, his servants, can know what God is going to do. That's why it's so important to read this as a book of prophecy. You say, well, duh, Timothy. Doesn't everyone know that the book of Revelation is a prophecy? Well, we'll talk about that. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7 Here's another part of the book that, again, emphasizes the prophecy. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So John is tying in his message with the Old Testament prophets time and time again. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What's going to be fulfilled in these prophecies is everything that God announced in the Old Testament to his servants, the prophets. That's why it's so important that we understand the Old Testament prophets in order to be able to understand the book of Revelation. If you misunderstand the Old Testament prophets, you will misunderstand the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 6 through 18, which is this future prophecy. And then finally, Revelation, the last chapter, 
chapter 22, verses 6 through 9, John says once again, or he records for us once again, that these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, here's him connecting his book once again to the prophets of the Bible. The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So this is predictive prophecy. That's how we're supposed to read it. That's how we're supposed to interpret it in connection with the Old Testament prophets. All right? So what we have is an epistolary prophecy. It's a book of prophecy in the form of a letter to the churches. It's a New Testament version of the Old Testament prophets is another way to say it. That's the book of Revelation. However, there's confusion that enters into the identification of the book of Revelation and how to read it when we start to talk about the book of Revelation as a part of the apocalyptic genre. What do scholars mean when they talk about the Bible as being an apocalyptic book, a book that is a part of the apocalyptic genre? Well, the word apocalypse is the same meaning as the word revelation in verse 1. In fact, the Greek word that is being translated as revelation is apocalypto. It's a Greek word that gets carried over into English as apocalypse. When people hear about the apocalypse, what they normally think of is the end of the world judgments. And that's really what is contained in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation has been known throughout church history as the apocalypse of John. We call it the revelation to John, but it's the same meaning. The meaning of the word apocalypse is to unveil, to reveal. And that is how we should interpret Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. John is not saying in Revelation 1 verse 1 that my book is like these non-canonical Jewish writings that are called apocalypses. That's a technical meaning of the word apocalypse that we should not read into the book of Revelation, but many scholars try to do so because they want to obscure the meaning of the book of Revelation. The apocalypses, as they are called as a genre, are a group of books that were written by Jewish people between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. And that's right about the time period that the book of Revelation is being written. And so it's very easy for scholars to make the wrong conclusion that, well, when John starts off by calling his book an apocalypse, that he's trying to connect it to books like 1st Enoch and 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch and the apocalypse of Adam or the apocalypse of Abraham. But what is true about these non-canonical apocalypses that is not true about John's revelation, his apocalypse, is that these books were attributed to false authors. That Enoch did not write the book of 1st Enoch. Ezra did not write the book of 4th Ezra. Baruch did not write the book of 2nd Baruch. These are books that were written from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. and they are attributed to authors who lived a long time previously. So there was this group of non-canonical Jewish writings that were written in a prophetic style, similar to some Old Testament prophets, but that were attributed to ancient people that were supposed to be encouragements to God's people to persevere in these last days of evil before God comes back and judges the world. And so people will try to compare the book of Revelation to these books. But the book of Revelation is different from these books in a lot of important ways. Yes, they both are about the end of the world. Yes, they both have a lot of symbolism that can be difficult to interpret. But John's revelation, John's apocalypse, is written by the person who claims to have written it, John himself. It's not attributed to someone else. And it has much more in common with the Old Testament prophets 
like Isaiah 24 to 27 in particular, and Isaiah 56 through 66, and parts of the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, that these are the prophetic books that John is connecting his book to, as we saw when we were showing the scripture verses about how this is a book of prophecy. And John does not connect his book to these non-canonical, pseudepigraphal books. When you read through John's epistle of prophecy, you should not connect it to the non-biblical books, but you should connect it with the biblical books. That's the point here. So, with that in view, let's go on to how do you interpret the symbols in the book of Revelation? For it is a book that is full of symbols. Look at Revelation 1, 1 through 3 again. Notice in the first verse where it says, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Literally, made it known would be translated as he made it known by symbols. He signified. You could translate it as signified, that there's a sign, one thing standing for something else. So God is making it known. He's communicating it through pictures, through symbols. There's a lot of pictures and symbols in the book. Notice that in the first chapter, it already starts off with the lampstands and the stars. As we were reading about the vision of the Son of Man in our scripture reading, the Son of Man is standing amidst the lampstands, these golden lampstands. And he has seven stars in his hand, as it says. And down in verse 20 then, that is interpreted. Jesus lets him know, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So already in chapter 1, you see there's symbolism that is being used to communicate. So how do we interpret these symbols in the book of Revelation? Well, many people will overemphasize the difficulty of interpreting these symbols. It's not that they're not difficult. There are some symbols that are difficult to interpret. But some people go too far and they overemphasize the difficulty and make it seem like you really even shouldn't try to understand the symbols that are in the book of Revelation. Or you shouldn't try to connect them to any particular referent, but you should just be very general and vague in understanding the symbols without trying to figure out what the symbol points to in history or in time and space. There's a tendency to overemphasize how hard it is to interpret. I came across this quote in one book about how to interpret the book of Revelation. They said it's like entering a foreign country or another planet. It's only like entering a foreign country if you don't know your Bible. When you know your Bible and you read the book of Revelation, then you understand most of the symbols. For those who have a hard time interpreting the book of Revelation, it's because they need to go back and they need to read and understand and be taught the Old Testament. And once you read and understand the Old Testament, then the symbols in the book of Revelation will make sense. It's not that it's difficult to interpret, it's only difficult if you haven't done your homework. And so we need to get back and do our homework. There's also a tendency to see too many symbols in the book of Revelation. Not everything in the book is a symbol. Normally, a symbol in the book of Revelation will be identified as such. For example, in Revelation chapter 11, we have a city that is called Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're told that it is spiritually Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not literally Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's literally the city of Jerusalem but it's being referred to symbolically. So the the book of Revelation will often let us know when it is using a symbol. 
And we shouldn't assume that everything in the book of Revelation is a symbol for something else. Some things in the book of Revelation are just plainly stated. For example, the 144,000 Jews who are sealed in the book of Revelation are 144,000 Jews who are sealed for salvation. They're not picturing something else. They're not a picture of the church. They're not a picture of some other group out there. They're 144,000 Jews. That's what they are. You've got to be careful not to overly symbolize the book. So don't make it too difficult and don't see symbols that aren't symbols. For example, another example, the green grass in Revelation chapter 8, verse 7 that gets burned up is not a symbol for people. People might think, well, you know, Isaiah says that the people are grass. And so therefore, when Revelation talks about grass being burned up, it's, it's people who are being burned up. No, the book of Revelation does not identify that as a symbol. In context, the grass is grass. The trees are trees, not to be interpreted symbolically. So avoid the tendency to overly symbolize the book of Revelation. Some things are literal. Now, is Babylon literally Babylon? Well, we'll discover that when we get to those chapters that deal with Babylon. The biggest question of all, is the thousand-year kingdom in Revelation chapter 20 a literal thousand-year kingdom, or is that a symbol? Well, that's what we'll get to when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But I believe it's a literal thousand years. Secondly, the book often explains its own symbols. So they're not so hard to interpret if you know your Old Testament. Not everything is a symbol, and third, the book often will explain its own symbols. In fact, 46 times in these chapters, John explains the meaning of the symbol. Look again at chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now you say, well, Timothy, why does John and Jesus and the angel put everything in these symbols, why use golden lampstands to represent the churches if in the next verse you're going to tell us, well, the seven lampstands are the seven churches? Why not just say from the beginning, Jesus was standing among the seven churches? Well, symbols have a power. And there's a reason why God communicates in symbols is that they communicate something that goes beyond just the bare identification. The fact that the church is represented by seven golden lampstands tells you something about the nature and purpose of the church and what God wants for his church and what Jesus' relationship is to the church. If he hadn't identified it as seven golden lampstands, well, then you wouldn't connect it with all of the passages about lampstands in the Old Testament and God's relationship and connection to golden lampstands in his holy temple. So the symbols communicate something beyond just the mere referent, but they do have a referent that is literal, that is in time and space history, and that's how you interpret the symbols of Revelation. You see the something more, but you also see the literal referent that is often explained in the text. Forty-six times, John will give the definition of the symbol, he'll give the referent for the symbol in the book. Fourth, if the book does not explain it, then go look for clues in the Old Testament. If the New Testament book of Revelation doesn't explain it, go back and look in the Old Testament. You should read the book of Ezekiel in preparation for understanding Revelation. If you haven't read Ezekiel, don't read Revelation. Now there's a blessing on reading the book of Revelation, so I have to be careful about telling you not to read the book of Revelation. But you've got to do your homework. 
The book of Ezekiel tells us about God sitting on his throne in a vision, about a scroll written on both sides, about people being marked on their foreheads, about coals of fire being thrown down to earth, about birds assembled for the judgment day, about Gog and Magog, and about the Messianic Jerusalem in chapters 40 through 47. And so, so much of what is in the book of Revelation, it's drawn from books like Ezekiel. Now, fifth, when it comes to understanding the symbolism in the book of Revelation, recognize this, that what the symbols refer to are not another symbol. Some people interpret the book of Revelation that the symbol refers to just a general idea, just a, a general truth, and that the symbol just represents some spiritual truth. But no, the symbols are reference to actual events and actual people. Now, whether those people are in the past, or whether those people are in the present, or whether those people and events are in the future, well, that's a matter of interpretation. We'll get to that. But let's start with the truth that when the Bible gives a symbol in prophecy, that symbol doesn't just represent some spiritual idea, but that symbol represents a king, a kingdom, a people, a place, an event, something that is taking place in time and space. The reference of the symbols are not symbolic. The reference are actual people, places, and things. So the symbols refer to something literal. You see this in the Old Testament prophets. You see it also in the book of Revelation. Notice that the Old Testament prophecies were not just symbols of general ideas, but they were literal prophecies that were fulfilled. The Bible says that the Messiah was going to ride on the back of a donkey. He's going to come to you humble, mounted on the foal of a donkey. Well, does that mean that he's just going to come in a humble manner? No. Jesus literally rode on a donkey. Now, did he come in a humble manner? Yes. But the prophecy had a literal fulfillment. And so that's the way we should read the prophecy in the New Testament, that yes, there's a spiritual meaning there. We don't deny the spiritual meaning that Jesus came humbly, but we also don't deny the historical fact that Jesus came riding on a donkey. And they're not mutually exclusive. It's not like, well, if you believe Jesus rode on a donkey, that then he didn't come in a humble manner. No, that's the point of riding on the donkey, is that he was coming in a humble manner. So some people will try to pit the literal fulfillment against the symbolic idea. And you can have both. You can believe that the book of Revelation is about this cosmic struggle between good and evil, and that it also is predicting literal people doing actual historical things in the future. They're not mutually exclusive. So, to sum up, read the book of Revelation as a book of prophecy with symbols that are explained in context or drawn from the Old Testament about actual persons and events that are going to take place future to the time of John. Okay, that's how you read the book of Revelation. That's not to say that we know how every prophecy in the book of Revelation is going to be fulfilled literally. Sometimes we have to wait for the fulfillment to happen before we're like, oh, that's what it was saying. That's how it came to be fulfilled. There are things in the book of Revelation that we don't know exactly how it's going to be fulfilled, but we do know that it will be fulfilled literally in some way. Make sense? So, with the time we have left, let's talk about when will these things be. Now, we'll go much more into detail on this when we get to chapters 6 through 18. But for now, I want you to know that 
One of the major disagreements about the book is how do we read the judgments that take place in chapters 6 through 19 of the book, which is the heart of the book. The bulk of the material is in chapters 6 through 19. And it's about judgments that Jesus Christ is pouring out upon the earth as he opens this seven-sealed scroll that leads to trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. And then in between the seals and the trumpets and the bowl judgments, we've got all kinds of details about what's going on during this time period. The question is, when do those things take place? Have they already taken place? Are they taking place? Are they yet to take place in the future? And so there's four ways of reading this part of Revelation. When it comes to the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, the judgments in the book of Revelation... You can be a preterist and think that they all took place in the past, already done. You can be a historicist thinking it's all taking place throughout the whole church age and that we're at some point in it now and that there's still more to happen. That's the historicist view of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, that they're going throughout all of church history in this present age. The futurist view is that they haven't happened yet. The seals haven't been opened, the trumpets haven't been blown, the bowls haven't been poured out, that this is going to happen in the future, in a future seven-year Great Tribulation. That's the futurist reading of Revelation 6 through 19. But there's also the timeless, the idealist view, that it's not past, present, or future. It's not referring to actual events and actual people. It just demonstrates the victory of God over evil. And this view is growing in popularity Now, idealism is true in the sense that many of the principles that they draw out are true. That's exactly right. Jesus was humble when he rode on the back of a donkey, but he also came and rode on the back of a donkey. So the idealist will just focus on the humility of Christ if he was interpreting the Old Testament in this timeless way. But you can believe in the ideals while also thinking that these are actual events, either in the past, present, or future. So a lot of people will have a mixed view of partially idealist, partial preterism, partial futurism, and just say, well, it's all good. We'll just take some of column A, B, and C. That's four major views, and then some people just mix them all together. So here's just one other picture to help you understand. Preterism sees it all in the past, either happening in the days of Nero or some people think it happened when Rome was destroyed. So some period here in early church history. Whereas the historicists say, no, it's this whole thing up until Christ comes back and includes the Pope, it includes the Dark Ages and all of this is pictured in the seals, trumpets and the bowls in one way or another. And then our position, my position that I'm going to teach unless I uh, discover it to be wrong, (laughs) is that these are future that the seals, trumpets, and the bowls are going to happen in this 70th week, this last seven years before Christ's second advent. So those are different ways of reading Revelation 6 through 19. Now, I'm not going to defend the futurist position this morning because that would take too much time. We will have time to get into that as we get closer to chapter 6 through 19. The main idea of the book of Revelation no matter whether you read the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as past, present, or future, or not referring to physical events at all, the main idea we can all agree on is that God wins. We can understand that Jesus Christ is exalted. We can understand that Jesus Christ has the authority and the power to judge. We can understand that Jesus Christ is coming back. We can understand that we're going to be resurrected. We can understand that we're going to have an eternity in the eternal kingdom. No matter what your position on the book of Revelation, we can agree on all of those things, and that's good. Because that is the main point. Jesus Christ is coming, and he's coming to be glorified. 
And as we read the book of Revelation, there is a special blessing that is pronounced upon us. Once again, back in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You see, God has made known to his servants the things that must soon take place. And therefore, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, in the context of verse 3, not everybody in the church had their own Bible like you do. The church had one copy of the book of Revelation. And they would gather together all the church so that someone could stand up among the congregation in the first century and early second century to read aloud the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so blessed is the one who reads the book. The one who decides this is God's word, this is prophecy, this is something that we need to know. Blessed is that one who leads the congregation and blessed is the congregation that hears the words written and read aloud. Now, you've got the Bible. We don't have to spend our time on Sunday morning reading aloud the book of Revelation, except for these three verses or chapter one like we had for our scripture reading. And so my exhortation to you is go home and read the book of Revelation, even if you haven't read Ezekiel. But I would recommend you read the book of Ezekiel too. And you read it and you'll read it and be blessed. You may not understand everything in the book, but you will understand enough. And as you read Ezekiel, and as you read Daniel, and as you read Isaiah, and as you read the Psalms, and as you read the book of Revelation, you will understand more. Now, it's my job to teach you, and so it's my job to read it more than anybody, but I don't want you to stand before God someday and for God to ask you, did you read my book? Well, I meant to. I wanted to. I thought it was a good idea, but I never really got around to it. You know, I was pretty busy. God says, I wrote a book for you. I had men die to get this book to you. I had people give their lives. My servants burned at the stake to translate my book, to pass it down and to get it into your hands, and you didn't have time to read my book? I don't want you to stand before God and have him rebuke you for not reading his book. So let me rebuke you now and say, read the book. Read it book by book. Read it chapter by chapter. You'll be blessed if you read the book. 